Hello, this is Shoshana Pupko with the Avatora Women's Parshara Shavuot Discussion Group with the Parshiot of Matos and Maaseh. We begin this week with the laws concerning the annulment of vows. And if you read through the text, much of the language will remind you of the Kol Nidre Tfilah that we say on Yom Kippur. Next, B'nai Israel were commanded to wage war against Midian to avenge the role they played in causing B'nai Israel to sin with the women of Midian. The Torah, interestingly, gives a detailed account of who was killed in the war and how the spoils of war were allocated. The tribes of Reuven, Gad, and later half the tribe of Menasheh then approached Moshe and asked for the land east of the Jordan as it was prime pasturing land for their cattle. Moshe was initially angered by their request, but he subsequently agreed on condition that these tribes join and lead the people's conquest of the rest of the land of Israel. The tribes agreed that only after all the land had been conquered and settled would they then return to the other side of the Jordan. The text then tells us of the 42 journeys and encampments from the Exodus to the current encampment of the people just across the river from the land of Canaan. The boundaries of the land of Israel are given in detail, and the people were commanded to provide the Leviim with 48 cities in which they would live. Six of these cities would serve as Aremiklat, cities that provided refuge to a person who unintentionally killed someone. And the parsha ends by returning to a story that we learned of in Parshat Pinchas, the inheritance of the daughters of Tzlafchad. But in our parsha, a new issue is raised. Let's turn now to this issue, guided by Rabbi Sachs's insights. A few leaders from Tzlafchad's tribe came to Moshe with the following scenario. Should the daughters of Tzlafchad marry men from another tribe, the land they inherited from their father would then pass to their husbands and thus to their husband's tribe. And this would mean that land initially granted to the tribe of Menashe would be lost in perpetuity. Moshe took the case to God, who pronounced the solution. The daughters of Tzlafchad were entitled to their land, but so too was the tribe of Menashe. And therefore, if the daughters of Tzlafchad want to keep their land forever, they have to marry men from within their own tribe. This way, both claims could be upheld. And this decision dictated that the daughters didn't lose the rights to their land, but they would lose some freedom in choosing a marriage partner. Now, this scenario is definitely interesting to talk about, but it seems to be quite an anticlimactic way to end the Book of Bamibar. It's also strange that the two scenarios about the daughters of Tzlafchad are separated in the text, one appearing in Parshat Pinchas and the other appearing here at the end of Parshat Maaseh. Rabbi Sachs suggests that delving deeper into this issue offers important insight about the Jewish people's transition into the land of Israel. And furthermore, these insights are directly relevant to all of us today. Let's take a step back for a moment and remind ourselves of the general content of Sefer Bamibar. 
For the most part, it's a book about individuals. It begins with a census whose purpose is less to tell us the actual number of people than it is to su'u et rosh, to lift the heads of each individual, to impart to the people that everyone counts. And it's against this backdrop that we can understand the claim of Tzlefcha's daughters. They were invoking their rights as individuals, and justly so. But Rabbi Sachs reminds us that society isn't built on individuals alone. Recall the numerous times we learned in the books of Navi, by Amim Haheim Ein Melech Israel. In those days, there was no king, no central leadership, no structured society. And the result was Ish Hayashar Be'inav Yaseh. Everyone did as he or she pleased, what was right in his own eyes, which led to anarchy and eventually a total breakdown of society. And so while celebrating the individual, Sefer, Sefer Bamidbar also places a central role on the tribe as a whole, as a larger communal unit. B'nai Israel were numbered tribe by tribe. They traveled and camped according to tribe, and gifts were offered to the Mishkan by tribe. Rabbi Sachs so perceptively explains that in separating the two stories of the daughters of Tzlavchad, the Torah is able to clearly make the following point. The first story in Parshat Pinchas is about individual rights, the rights of Tzlavchad's daughters to claim their share of the land. The second story, at the end of Sefer Bamidbar, is about group rights. In this case, the right of the tribe of Menasheh to its territory. And the Torah's demand of us is to consistently grapple with this dialectic, with the balance between individual rights and collective responsibilities. Rabbi Sachs writes, many of the most seemingly intractable issues in contemporary Jewish life have appeared because Jews, especially in the West, are used to a culture in which individual rights are held to override all others. We should be free to live as we choose, worship as we choose, and identify as we choose. But a culture based solely on individual rights will undermine families, communities, and traditions. Despite its enormous emphasis on the value of the individual, Judaism also insists on the value of those institutions that preserve and protect our identities as members of a group. We have rights as individuals, but identities as members of the tribe. Honoring both is delicate, difficult, and necessary. I'd like to suggest that the Torah's requirement that we balance individual rights with collective responsibility is the message embedded in another topic in our parsha, which also demands much explanation. We learn of the six Aremiklat, the cities of refuge, where a person who killed accidentally must flee. And what's fascinating is the condition for when the person is given permission to return home. We read Vayashavba Armot HaKohen Hagadol, 
a person must live in the Ir Miklat until the death of the Kohen Gadol. There are many responses offered by the commentators trying to find a connection between the death of the Kohen Gadol and a person's release from the Ir Miklat. Rabbi Sachs was drawn to the perspective of the Rambam, who saw the connection rooted deeply in human nature. The Rambam in the Guide for the Perplexed writes, the chance of returning from the exile depends on the death of the high priest, the most honored of men and the friend of all of Israel. By his death, the relative of the slain person become reconciled. For it is a natural phenomena that we find consolation in our misfortune when the same misfortune or a greater one has befallen another person. Among us, no death causes more grief than that of the high priest. With these comments, I don't believe that the Rambam is suggesting that we engage in what I sometimes call comparative grief, which means that my stuff doesn't count so long as someone else has it worse. What the Rambam is suggesting is that grappling with individual loss while simultaneously coping with national loss creates a shift in the individual. This shift is reflected in a, reduced, in a reduced desire for vengeance and an increased willingness to be open to the more vulnerable process of grieving. And from a place of healthy grieving comes the recognition that making a positive contribution to the world is far more healing than engaging in a behavior that contributes to the cycle of violence. I have no doubt that we can all relate to this concept to different degrees, experiencing an individual loss within the larger context of greater national loss. And I speak from personal experience in saying that this is true even in circumstances of deeply painful personal loss. The Torah once again pushes us to live the dialectic between our being an individual while simultaneously a member of the larger group. This is clearly a timeless lesson, but I think we feel it now more than ever. We spent months focusing on ourselves as individuals as we were forced out of communal structures during COVID. And the question we must ask ourselves now is whether that experience strengthened our individuality so that we bring a stronger self back to the community or whether our indulgence in self has resulted in pulling us away from our collective responsibilities. Let's remind ourselves of the individual rights of the daughters of Tzlafchad as well as the sacrifices they were asked to make in order to maintain the strength of the collective. And let's be constantly aware that if we lose sight of this balance, it's not only the community who suffers, but ultimately, we as individuals suffer as well. Remember that the time period in the Navi of Ish Hayashar Be'inav Yaseh always ended in calamity. Let's learn from our mistakes. And as we take care of ourselves as individuals, let's devote ourselves equally to strengthening our community. It is this message that God conveyed to the Jewish people as they prepare to enter the land of Israel. And it is this message 
that we must live by now more than ever.